My name is Mohsen Alatar. I'm an associate professor at the University of Warwick School of Law, and this is my podcast on international economic law. In the second half of this week's podcast, I will focus primarily on international political economy with a discussion of three key theories, mercantilism on one hand, liberalism on a second, and Marxism in the third. And ultimately what I'll conclude is to show how all three of these international political economy theories are relevant in the study of international economic law and relevant for understanding then the direction that international economic law is likely to take in the future. All right, let's go ahead and resume. So international economic law itself then, we date to during and roughly the end of the second great European war. So we have the end of this great European war, Europe had just finished bloodying itself in a variety of ways, and the UN, which was just established at the time, was devised with this notion of international peace and security as a type of watermark. This is what was meant to inform all the activities of the United Nations. It was going to promote international cooperation but international cooperation in relation to all relations between nation states. And necessarily, this included economic relations. Now, to that end, a number of institutions were devised, institutions that came to their existence under the auspices of the United Nations. So this includes the International Monetary Fund, this includes the World Bank. It includes an organization that is better thought of historically because it never really established itself, the International Trade Organization also. And I'll explain why it never really established itself shortly. So these bodies that we're referring to, all of which were designed to assist states with their economics, to assist states devise then or to um, resolve the structural challenges that they were facing. Now bear in mind that, as I said, Europe had just spent a few years bloodying itself. Um, anyone here been to Coventry? Yes. And you notice that Coventry looks very different from other British cities. It doesn't look like York. It doesn't look like Edinburgh. And why is that? Anyone? No? Precisely. It was wiped out, a little bit like Dresden. And so, in the end, the city had to be rebuilt anew. And so now you turn around and you don't have those picturesque, old-looking castles and such. All of that is gone, and it's gone because they were wiped out. So now you have all of these nations that are in the need of reconstruction. And the only way that the UK, the only way that Germany, the only way that France, the only way that Italy, the only way that these countries are going to be able to rebuild themselves is if there is some economic cooperation. Now this is where the UN came in and the UN was established with that in mind. Now of course in truth the story is not so rosy, it is not a fairy tale, and how were these countries to be rebuilt also? Well largely to be rebuilt on the backs of the third world. So what did France do during that period? try to retain 
control over colonies. And so despite the United Nations guaranteeing in law, in international law, the sovereignty, the self-determination of peoples, the French spent, how many was it, 8, 10, 12 years trying to prevent the Algerians from obtaining their independence, massacring some 2 million in the process. The Vietnam War, as the Americans like to publicize it, just so we're clear, in Vietnam it's actually known as the American Invasion. No, really, genuinely. You go there and you talk to them, you talk about the American Invasion. And the Vietnam War began because France, which was the colonial power prior to it, was unable to hold on to Vietnam. And the Americans came in to the rescue. And it was to prevent the Vietnamese from achieving self-determination. To rebuild itself, what Europe needed was not just economic cooperation, it also needed economic exploitation. And this is why much effort went towards preserving the colonies that they had acquired during the imperial colonial period. So these specialized institutions were developed, but these specialized institutions in the early days were themselves mired in a very specific type of debate. And that debate had to do with two economic ideologies that were dominant at the time. There was a third economic ideology that we're going to study later on that builds on these. But there were two dominant economic ideologies, both of which were tugging at the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank and pulling it in different directions. And the first one was Keynesianism. Keynesianism, right? I mispronounce that often. So we're thinking of Keynes. And what did Keynes believe in? He believed in, he's a Brit, British economist. What did he believe in? He believed in liberalism. Remember what we said before, opening up the borders to allow the free flow of goods, not services. We weren't there yet, just the free flow of goods. But Keynes was also keen on government intervention. Government intervention for two reasons. On one hand, to help stabilize the economy. And his argument was that these type of activities that we are permitting to take place are often driven by some of the worst aspects of human nature. Maximization of self-interest is also a type of greed. And that in itself is going to produce a series of crises. And the second part, a series of dislocations. Now, what do I mean by that? The crises are the type of economic crises that we've witnessed. So one can look then at the Great Depression. That is one of those crises. There is a crisis in the 80s around debt. There is a crisis in the 90s around debt. There is a crisis in early 2000. There is another crisis in 2008. It's very much moving from one crisis to the next. And so he believed that government should intervene when that crisis manifests. Government should intervene to stabilize the economy. Anyone here heard of quantitative easing? production of money, you're releasing more money into the economy because you're trying to stimulate economic activity. 
that is a form of government intervention. All of you have heard of the NHS? That is a form of government intervention, but it's a different form. So on the one hand, we intervene to stabilize the economy, and on the other hand, we intervene to address the social dislocations that some people are going to suffer. So Keynes, for all his faults, was a realist. And he said that as some people win, others invariably will lose. And if we want to avert a crisis whereby those who lose ultimately revolution, rise to arms, try to subvert the state, we have to address those dislocations that we know are inevitable. And so we are going to establish a minimum floor to ensure that nobody falls below this. Subsidized housing. Somebody always has a roof over their head. Socialized medicine. You can always see a doctor. Subsidized primary, secondary, and tertiary education to ensure that everyone has the opportunity to rise above their station. That was the minimum floor that was put in place to address those social dislocations and the NHS is part of it. All of those are forms of government intervention. They're different from the quantitative easing. They're different from tariffs. I keep taking for granted. Everyone here know what a tariff is? <laughs> so I'll give you a quick example. Um, I was doing some research on cocoa, right? I have a fondness for chocolate. So I was doing some research on it on a few years ago and I was looking at the tariffs within the EU for the import of cocoa products. Now to import cocoa beans, this was probably about a decade ago, import cocoa beans, uh, the figure was somewhere around 4%. So it was a 4% tariff on cocoa beans. So if you happen to be in Ghana, you produce cocoa beans, you ship them there, you're going to be paying a 4% tariff on it. Ground cocoa, cocoa powder, had a higher tariff. It was in the range of 16 to 18%. I can't recall exactly, but it was definitely double digits and it was around there. Cocoa butter was at 40%. And a chocolate bar was itself at 80%. So all of these were a series of tariffs that were in place. Now, what is the rationale? All of these are cocoa products. Why the variation in terms of the tariffs? Right. So, on the first hand, we have some are more processed than others. The cocoa bean, not processed at all, or barely processed at least. And the chocolate bar, heavily processed. So if we look at those that require heavier processing, we want to preserve that activity in the EU. And so we encourage those other jurisdictions, those other nation states, ultimately, to produce the lower valued goods that they export to us. So we create an incentive for them to export those lower valued goods to us. And then we have opportunity then to fashion them into a finished product. You had your hand up? Right. So in the end, but we take it a little bit further, from a mercantile perspective, which we'll discuss shortly, this is about maximizing national interest. You know, I might like to visit Ghana, I might even have some Ghanaian friends, but what the hell do I care if Ghanaians live in poverty or not? I'm in Europe. So this is that tension that emerged between cooperation and maximization of self-interest. 
Now, bringing this back then to international economic law, we have these interventions. Tariffs themselves are an intervention in the market. Now, the logic, if we go with the open borders, is that let the Ghanaians produce chocolate bars, let them ship their chocolate bars into Europe without any tariffs, tariff-free, and let them compete against the Swiss, Belgian, French chocolate bars. And ultimately, the market will decide. If people prefer the French chocolate, they'll buy French chocolate. If they prefer Belgian chocolate, they'll buy Belgian chocolate. And if they happen to prefer Ghanaian chocolate, they will buy Ghanaian chocolate. But as we said before, what is driving this? Still, it is maximization of self-interest, maximization of national prosperity. So that cooperation can only take us so far. So we have on one hand Keynes who's advocating liberalism with interventions. And on the other side, what we have or what came to be known as the second world, the planned economies of Eastern Europe, the planned economies of the Soviet Union, the planned economies of Botswana, of Cuba, of Venezuela, of a number of places. So there were two ideologies in place. Now what is the planned economy? The planned economy says that we must, it is essential for the state to intervene in the market to ensure a fair and equitable distribution of economic output. Essential for the state to intervene to ensure a fair and equitable economic output. Now there's a way that I can explain this and I will do it with the board. Let us say that this blank space is our state. So this is the state and we are going to devise some type of economic system and we opt then for a capitalist system which we study next week. We opt for a capitalist system. And now the question is, what laws are we going to put in place? What Keynes says to us is that you need two types of laws. You need, on the one hand, a law that establishes a floor. And we say, we need this floor to prevent people from falling below it. Because here, this is where people are destitute. This is where people are hungry. And what Keynes was particularly concerned with, this is where people are angry. So this is what we're trying to prevent. So we establish a floor. And you think of the NHS. You think of education. Think of then in relation to um, uh, national insurance. All of these are part of the floor. So that in the end, if you happen to be out of work, for whatever reason, the industrial policy is such that your sector loses out. There used to be a textile sector in the UK, a very vibrant textile sector in the UK. Now we produce 200 jeans a week. What happened to all those people who were involved in the production of textiles? Many of them are in the streets of Coventry or Leamington begging for money. That's the reality of it. Some people lose out. So you need this minimum then to ensure that people don't become destitute, that they're not left hungry, and most of all, that they're not angry. Because if they're angry, that is when revolutions happen. Now what you also need, Keynes tells us, is you need a type of system, type of intervention, laws, that are going to help structure the economy. 
This is what we refer to as a managed economy. Now, so we're clear, all economies are managed. The question becomes, what type of management are you promoting? Now, when it comes to industrial policy, you can decide, such as George Osborne, former chancellor, had suggested, the northern powerhouse. We are going to build high-speed rail from London to Birmingham, from Birmingham to Manchester. We're going to build high-speed rail to connect the north that has been disadvantaged by the liberalization that has happened. That is where much of the manufacturing was in the north. We are going to shift, build this high-speed rail to try to give opportunity, to create opportunity for economic development to take place in the north. That is an industrial policy. That is a government decision that is being made. They are planning their economy into the future. I was recently in Singapore and I was baffled. I went to a center that they have on urban development. And what do they have? They have a space that is roughly the size, oddly, roughly the size of the seats that you are in now. And all of that has Singapore, the city, not the island as a whole, that's in another room. They have the city of Singapore in a maquette. It's all built up. So you're actually looking at the whole of the city. And some of them have windows. There are no people walking around, but they do have windows. They have trees. It's all set up. You can see where the parks are. And they have this, and others, the facades, are completely blank. And what is the difference? The one with the windows, they're already built. The ones with the facade where they're blank, it's where they plan, they intend on building. And you can see in between now, the construction plans for Singapore between now and 10 years from now. And I was there with a couple of Singaporeans and one of them said, ah, that's where I live. And they pointed to the window of the building in which they live. It is that precise. It is that detailed. That is the type of planning that takes place in Singapore. Now, we heard the other day Jeremy Hunt saying that Britain can become the next Singapore. And I say, hell, if I can get a planning, a maquette that size for London, right? Three cheers for Singapore or three cheers for Brexit. So managed economies simply involve interventions by the state in the economy, shifting investment one way, creating incentives for different type of activities in the other. That is the nature of it. So that is on one side of the divide, and on the other side of the divide are what we call planned economies. So not just managed, but planned. Where you're saying, and China was very big on this, they would put out their plans, five years, 10 years, 15 year increments, how they were planning, what they were going to develop, which sectors, who would be involved in it, and so on. In all instances, there was some management. In all instances, there was some planning. The question is, how much, what scale, what breadth, and most importantly, who is involved in the planning? With managed economies, what we often see are collaborations between the public and the private sector. With the planned economies, it tended to be more on the public because the public was also the one delivering 
many of the services that we consider essential. So Tams Water, for example, used to be a public company. It is now private. Royal Mail used to be a public company. It is now private. In each one of those instances, what the government said is we should not be involved in the delivery of water. There are others who are more effective, more efficient at it, the private sector. We should not be involved in delivering mail. There are others who are more effective, more efficient. Now, going to what I said to you earlier, where you delineate, where you frame it, is ultimately a political choice. In some countries, Canada Post, so in Canada, the government it delivers mail. In the UK, it was the government until uh, we had the um, coalition government just a few years back. Banking, in many places, remains government-controlled. In others, it has gone fully private. So these are all political choices that are being made, political choices, as I said, that are informed by certain aspirations and that have a number of implications. But this was the tension that emerged at the time, right around the 1940s. And what we saw with those institutions is they were being pulled in different directions. So often when you hear of the Cold War, and we say, oh, that involved the Americans and it involved the Soviets, it was capitalism against communism, the debate was largely about the type of international economic legal system that was going to triumph. Was it a liberal system? Was it a liberal system with state intervention? Was it a liberal system with state intervention and protections for social dislocations? A managed economy? A planned economy? An economy that creates more space for private actors? An economy that makes less space for private actors? And in the planned economies, and this is what really changed in the UK, because the UK had this as well, in the 70s under Thatcher, in planned economies, I mentioned to you the floor, what you also had was a ceiling, a maximum. What was the upper tax rate when Thatcher came into power in the UK? Anyone know? Actually, do you know what the upper tax rate is today? 40%, right? There's an exception in there as well, 45% for those who are above 150. That's a temporary measure that was put in place following the financial crisis. Well, in fact, it was put to 50 and then it was dropped to 45. So if you earn over 150,000 pounds, you were taxed at 45%. What was it just one generation ago? Ready? Well, a little bit higher than that. A little bit higher, 85%. What? No, bloody horror. <laughs> March on parliament. You have to pay for it somehow. Progressive tax rate. Simple as that, 85%. That was lowered and lowered and lowered, and now it's at 45. 70 is in the news today, but why is it in the news? Right, there's talk about reintroducing it where? In the United States. Cortez, new Republican, new Democrat, right? Congresswoman said we should raise taxes. Now, all taxation is a form of government intervention. Again, all taxation is government intervention. The question is, what type of intervention are you in support of? And what do you use that intervention to do? So this elimination of the ceiling, which has taken place here in the UK, took place during neoliberalism, which we study, I think, in week four or week five. And there was a rationale behind it. So the two ideologies that dominated at the time were between 
Keynes and this planned managed economy structure. But then in the 70s, this new idea of neoliberalism emerged. But we don't have time to talk about that today. So today, what I would like us to point to, or what I'm going to spend the last half hour on, is the usefulness in you understanding a little bit, and I'm only going to spend this 30 minutes on it, though I do encourage you to read the article that I assigned. It's in the suggested readings. On political economy. The only way to understand international economic law, in addition to understanding international law, is to understand political economy.